Harvest Saturday. I would encourage you to do that. As you know, uh, this is a ministry out into the community, and we want to be the kind of church that goes out into the community and blesses people, blesses people with what they need uh, for the day and to bless them with what they need for all of eternity. And uh, our family has, has done this as a family, and Ellen and I, once our kids have gotten older and have moved on, uh, we have done it as a couple. We make these deliveries, and the blessing that comes back to you as you're blessing people is wonderful. And so I, as your minister, I would encourage you to think about a way that you could bless a family this, uh, in this community during this season. And if uh, you're able to sign up and make deliveries uh, next Saturday, that would be an awesome way for you to share your life and to share blessing with people in this community. Now, as you know, in December, we're thinking about the true story of Christmas. The true story of Christmas is really a celebration of the Incarnation. The word incarnation means to become flesh, and it's about Jesus, who is God the Son, who comes in the flesh. He is born a human. He is born of a woman. He is born of a virgin. He's born a peasant, and he is born to experience both what is the worst and the best that life on earth has to offer. He is born to save humans from their sins. He is born to reconcile humans to God. He is born to bring peace between us and God and to bring joy to all men. He is born to give us a new and a different kind of life in the kingdom of God. And as we saw last week, we humans have not always made that very easy. We tend to get in our own way. And our history with God can be summarized, as we saw last week, with three statements. These three statements are, we trust until we don't trust and we get in trouble. We make good decisions until we make bad decisions and then the trouble comes. And a lot of times it's one step forward until two steps backwards. And that is, in three statements, a condensed history of fallen humanity. Now, when we think about what the Bible has to say in terms of how God reacts and responds to our need as human beings, there is a theme that we see from Genesis all the way to the maps at the back of the Bible, and it's this. God's tenacious love for humans never fails. God's tenacious love for human beings never fails. I want you to say that together with me. God's tenacious love for humans never fails. One of the most well-known, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, in fact, we sing songs using this verse, was written by Jeremiah during a really dark time of history in Israel. And in the middle of a lot of bad things happening, this is something that Jeremiah recognizes, and he writes in Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never, His mercies never come to an end. The phrase, he loves, his love endures forever, that we read all over the Old Testament, all over the Hebrew Scriptures, appears 41 times in the Old Testament. It is a reminder, it's this consistent, continuous refrain that God loves, God loves, God loves, God loves. God's tenacious love for humans never fails. Humans are indeed loved tenaciously by God. His love is never going to fail. 
Everyone you have, ever, you have ever seen in your life, every single person you have known in your life is loved by God. You are loved tenaciously by God. And in the text that Seth read just a couple of minutes ago, our Bible text this morning, that text is really about how humans historically have responded to the news that Jesus, God the Son, is born into the world as the ultimate expression of God's tenacious love that never fails. And it involves a couple of characters, actually a group of characters and a king, wise men and the king. And the story begins with these magi coming from the east. They arrive in Jerusalem and they start going door to door, going down the streets, asking everybody that they would see a very simple question. Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 2, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And to that one, they would ask the same question. And to that one, the same question. And they would say, We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, we call them the wise men, but sometimes we have to ask, what in the world are wise men, especially the kind of wise men following a star? Well, these wise men technically are known as magi. And magi are basically wise men, but they have, they're, they're basically men who possess a, a very specific, special kind of wisdom that has to do with dream interpretation and astrology, being able to read the stars. Both of these were professions that were not very kosher in the eyes of the Jewish people in Israel. And when we think about them, and I'm going to refer to them as the three wise men, there's nothing wrong with that, but truth be told, we don't know how many there were. We typically think of three because there are three gifts. That myrrh, the gold, and the frankincense. That actually came in the 3rd century in 225 A.D. when a guy by the name of Origen said, you know, there must have been three. About 700 years after that, they were given names. These three wise men, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. But again, we don't know how many there were. We don't know what their names are. But the big, the big thing we know about them is that they followed the star. Stars showed up, they follow a star to Jerusalem to find a baby, and not just any baby, a baby that was born to be king. Now, it's kind of an odd thing, this star thing, right? I mean, when you and I, when we go outside of our house and we look up and we see the stars, whether we're in the city or we're out in the country, sky full of stars, they all look like they're over us, right? So what is the deal with this star that they follow? In my opinion, this is a special star that is leading them. The language is not a star that rose in the east like any normal star. The, the language is actually the star when it appeared, or the star as it rose and presented itself. Now, you know, here's the thing. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth and created everything in between with a word. Out of nothing, He created something. He created everything that we see. And He put into the world, into nature, the laws that keep this thing rolling. We also believe that, for instance, in Joshua chapter 10, God was able to cause the sun to stand still. We also believe that He was able to do the miracle in Jonah chapter 2 of creating this special Jonah the prophet swallowing fish that was able to keep this man alive underwater until it was able to spit him out on, on the shore. 
We believe that God has the power to be able to do these kinds of things. And if He can, and we believe He does, then He can create a special Magi-leading star that will get these wise men into Jerusalem looking for the king who is born. And these men, and so think about, you know, the star shows up. And these men leave home for months and months and months. It's not like they go down to the airport and jump on a southwest you know, plane to, to Love Field. They, they travel for months, slowly, following, following the star. They travel a long distance, following this unique, God-created, Jesus-pointing star all the way to the city of Jerusalem. And what they're doing as they do this is to put their life on the back burner. To find the king, they're putting their life on hold in order to get to the end of that search. And they arrive in Jerusalem and they begin to ask, where's the one that's born, king of the Jews? And they're asking and they're asking and soon word of their search and their question gets to King Herod. And in the very next verse, Matthew says, when King Herod heard this, he was what? Disturbed. Now, every birth that I've ever been a part of, that I've ever known about, that I've ever heard about, it was always a cause for celebration. I mean, who doesn't love it when a baby is born into the world? It's a great thing. And yet King Herod, when he hears about this baby being born, he is disturbed. And then notice the next five words, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why in the world would a man with as much power as a king, King Herod in particular, be troubled at the news of the birth of a baby. And then on top of that, not only why is he so upset and disturbed, but why is all Jerusalem, not just you know the neighborhood next to the palace, but all of Jerusalem is, is troubled that Herod is troubled? The answer, I think, has to do with this word power and Herod's relationship with it. Power was the operative word in the life of Herod, who is our second character with the group of three, the the wise men, Herod the Great. There is, when you, you think about the life of Herod, King Herod, there is this undeniable genius when it came to administrating the kingdom of Israel during that time, and, and the architecture, the way that he built it up. All you have to do is stand on the shore of the Mediterranean there in Israel and look out on Caesarea Maritima, It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, this this port out of nothing that he created that still stands to this day. You go to Jerusalem and you can look south towards the Dead Sea and there's a mountain that has literally had the top of it cut off. And uh, a palace, the Herodium, named after himself, is placed on top of it. It was a place that he could go to if he was ever in trouble. You can go to Masada. Now, that raises hundreds of feet above ground. You go to Masada, and it's even higher up in the air, and it's built on this plateau. It's in the desert, and it's got irrigation. It's got water. It's got ways to store water for, for, for lots and lots of time. And you look at all of the ways that he built and created, and you go, there is an undeniable genius in King Herod. But at the same time, he is an individual that is plagued with paranoia. Maybe a lot more later in life than in the beginning of his life. But it's this paranoia that made him a nasty individual when it came to rivals. Earlier in his life, before he was made king, 
You know, he learned that trust is not something that you just dole out flippantly. Trust was not easy for Herod, as his father Antipater was poisoned. And what that did was kind of bring to a conclusion in Herod's mind that, that life is short, and life is a lot of times very tenuous, and you don't know who to trust. And so when he is named king by Rome in 40 B.C., one of the first things he does as he begins to consolidate his power is to purge the Sanhedrin. He was married uh, several times throughout his life, and there's one very sad episode in his life. He, he executes his favorite wife, Mary Omni, because there was a rumor that was kind of swirling around the palace that she had committed adultery. It was never proven. He never knew for sure if it had happened or not happened, but his paranoia was such that he couldn't live with her and he had her executed. And because trust was such a hard thing with this, this individual, he wrote towards the end of his life and rewrote his will seven times. Trying to find a trusted success, successor was a difficult thing for him. And so every time he would name a successor, the paranoia would rise up. He would begin to wonder, can I trust this cat or not? Is he going to be somebody that now that it's official in the will that he's going to do me in so he can take over the kingdom? And he would rewrite the will. And the, the, the struggle with all of that is seen in that he was not afraid to execute a bunch of his sons. He killed his own boys. And the last one he killed five days before he himself actually died in the palace there in Jericho. His propensity to execute people was such, especially members of his own family, that Caesar, Caesar Augustus once quipped that it was better to be Herod's pig than it was to be born his son. He had a lot of wives, was not afraid to execute mother-in-laws. He had a sister by the name of Salome that, along with her husband Alexis, he said, here's the deal. I'm about to die. I want to make sure that there's a lot of grieving that takes place, a lot of mourning when I die. I want you to find all the notable families in Jericho. He did not die in Jerusalem. He died in Jericho at that palace. I want you to take all these notable families. I want you to lock them in the Hippodrome. And when I die, execute them all to make sure that there's a lot of crying on the day that I die. And fortunately for all the notable families of, of Jericho, she did not comply, and she released all of them after Herod died. But if there is ever a descriptive statement that describes Herod the Great, it's this. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. When Herod ain't ha happy, ain't nobody happy. And this, quite frankly, church, is why all Jerusalem is troubled that Herod isn't happy at the news that there is a rival king being born in Israel. And the irony of it, and I mean, this, the, the whole thing is just ironical, but the irony is that Herod, of all people, he goes to the Scriptures to find out if this rumor is true. And the chief priests and the scribes, they all show up and they're excited because, yes, it is true, and they show him the scripture from the prophet Micah that says, And you, Bethlehem, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod thinks that he's fortunate to find out that it's Bethlehem, which is just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. And he says, aha, 
And he schemes to get the wise men to go to Bethlehem to find the child and then come back and let him know where the child is at so that Herod can go and worship him. Nobody really believed that. But the wise men are not local. And they say, Roger that. They take off after the star who leads them to Jesus in Bethlehem. And Matthew says, and when they got there, going into the house, they saw the child. Could you imagine that moment? They go in and they see the Messiah as a child. He's with Mary, his mother. And then notice what they do. These are wise men. These are adult men. But they're looking for a king. And the king is in front of them. And they fall down and worship him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And Herod is a shrewd individual. Time passes, and Herod figures out that the wise men have left without saying goodbye, and he sends his troopers to Bethlehem, and this is one of the the saddest pieces of history, the saddest parts of Herod's life. He, He sends the troopers to Bethlehem to execute all the male babies two years and younger. I guess... If you can execute your own sons, you can execute someone else's. But God knows Herod, and he knows Herod's heart. And he sends an angel to tell Joseph in a dream to get the family out of Egypt. And so in this story, what we have is you have a king who is paranoid and, and is murderous and is trying to destroy the baby. And then you have wise men from the east who come and they want to worship the baby. They want to worship the Messiah. They want to worship the king. And so at the end of this particular text, there is a, a question. It is a Christmas story question. And the question is this. Do I have a heart like Herod? Or do I have a heart like the wise men? Do I have a Herod heart or do I have the heart of a wise man? The Herod heart represents a confrontation between the tenacious love of God for humans with the self-serving, the self-centered, the self-revolving, self-orbiting heart of fallen humanity. Herod, friends, is who we are and who we can become without God. Now, we may not literally execute somebody, but we execute them in our hearts. The Herod heart will always be about self-rule. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I am the final word in my own life. The Herod heart will always be about self-rule and will fight to the end to be large and in charge in order to do what it wants to do. The means is always going to justify the end 
for the Herod heart. And the Herod heart will not allow God or anyone else to rule over it. And friends, Herod has been dead for 2,000 years, but the Herod heart comes in all sizes and can be found everywhere. There are Herod husbands and Herod wives. There are Herod family with Herod children. We work for Herod bosses. We are sometimes supervising Herod employees. We live among Herod neighbors. Herod's are, people with Herod hearts are found all over the place. And the part that King Herod and the wise men play in the Christmas story is to illustrate two important responses to the tenacious love of God for human beings. Two responses. The first, like the wise man, seek him. God wants the whole world to be saved. God wants the whole world to be saved and to be healed, to be repaired, to be reconciled, to be transformed, to be blessed, to be with Him. And the Magi, as we said earlier, the Magi, they're Gentiles and they're foreigners. And not only that, the way that they support themselves and sustain themselves in the world is in a profession that is not kosher in the eyes of, of Israel. And yet, God has invited them with a special invitation to visit the birth of Jesus. It's sort of clichéic today, but I saw it on a bumper sticker just the other day. It says, wise men still seek him today. Jeremiah, who during that really dark period in Israel's history, penned the words, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, in the book of prophecy that bears his name, speaking for God to Israel says this, you will seek me and find me. You will seek me and find me. God is saying, seek me because you'll find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And then the second thing, seek him, but when you do find him, and this is Herod, we need to learn to surrender to him. We need to surrender to him. Our, our hearts as human beings are always going to be a battlefield between two kingdoms. Our hearts are always going to be in a struggle between two kingdoms. But if Jesus really is who he says he is, then our personal rule is over. It is time to raise the white flag. It is, it is, the, it is the moment that we surrender to Him and confess that I'm my own worst enemy. I am my own worst In fact, why don't you do that right now? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, I'm my own worst enemy. <laughs> Somebody added, I'm definitely my worst enemy. <laughs> Question. Have you decided who is going to be in charge of your life? Have you decided who is going to lead your life? 
The kingdom of God is the greatest offer that a human being is ever going to ever, ever, ever receive. It's the greatest invitation a human being is ever going to receive. But it is not going to be built through coercion. It is an invitation. It is an invitation to experience firsthand, profoundly and thoroughly, forever and ever, the tenacious love of God for humans that fills our hearts up to the point that they can contain no more and it overflows. The question really is, going back to those three statements that define the history of human beings, the question, the personal questions are these. Am I going to trust Him? Am I going to trust God? And am I going to decide to follow Him? Am I, will I follow Him wherever He leads me? One step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Think for a moment. I mean, if you're, if you're struggling with whether or not you should do it, think about the gifts of the wise men. Gold is, is what you give to a king, which is what Jesus is. And frankincense is for priests, which is what Jesus is as well. But what about that crazy myrrh? Myrrh is a spice for death. Myrrh is the spice that is used to prepare bodies who have died for burial. You know, when you think about who Jesus is, he's born king. He is a king. And you think about who God the Son is in all of his glory. And you think about the way that he came into the world. Jesus did not come as he deserved. There is no fanfare, no pomp, no circumstance. Jesus did not come as he deserved, but he came as he was needed, a Savior. In Matthew's Gospel, the wise men are asking everyone they meet on the streets of Jerusalem, where is the one born King of the Jews? In Matthew's Gospel, believe it or not, this is the last time, chapter 2, it is the last time that Jesus will be referred to as a king in that particular gospel. The last time after that, that Jesus will be referred to as a king is when he's being crucified. And Pilate has a sign put over his head that says, King of the Jews. The kings of the world have always expected their subjects and their servants to sacrifice themselves for his good, to, 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 to die for the king to have life. Jesus is the only king who died in order for his subjects and servants to have life. And that is the bottom line. When you experience and come into, into, in, into contact with the tenacious love of God, you are coming into contact 
with the offer of life and not just life everlasting, but an abundant life. That means a life with significance, a life with purpose. It is a life of transformation. You will become the human being that God always intended for you to be. That is a life of peace and of joy and of gentleness and of faithfulness. It is, it is a life that is stable even in the worst moments. It is a life that, that God is with you. Even in the darkest moments of your life, it is life with God. That's what life in the kingdom of God is all about. And that is why Jesus came, as He was needed, as a Savior. And there was something in that encounter with that star leading them to Jesus that caused the wise men to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. We want you to become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. And I know that there are lots of questions about what that means. I know that there are lots of doubts. There are lots of questions. There are lots of of wonderments. There are lots of bad experiences, perhaps, with, with religious folk. The bottom line is that Christianity rises and falls on the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And He is the one... You scrape everything else aside. He is the one that said, because of love, I am going to die so that your sins can be forgiven. And I will be buried for three days. And on the third day, I will be resurrected. And I will share all of that with you. That's the offer. The question you have to ask, though, is do I have a Herod heart? Or do I have the heart of the wise men? Let's stand and let's sing together.